It's Wednesday, May 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hale. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger, and all the way from Sydney, Australia, from Motley Fool Share Advisor, Mr. Scott Phillips. Woo! Welcome, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. A week ago this time, we had Uncle Joe Mager on the phone, and we thought, no, no, we'll just, no, forget forget Joe for a moment. <laughs> Let's get Scott here and studio. Scott uh, came over for our annual meeting last week, and you're, you are heading out to Omaha uh, for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Uh, right. And as of right now, by the way, uh, there's a chance of snow. So that's the weather forecast. So I hope you pack something warm. You know, I actually didn't. So yesterday I actually got out to Gap and saw some of the uh, greatest of American retailing and I had to go and buy myself a couple of jackets just so I could make it through the snow and apparently almost freezing temperatures. <laughs> Wonderful. I like that you're being prepared. That's good. Um, all right, we're going to talk. Uh, we've got some earnings from DreamWorks Animation, from MasterCard. Um, we have uh, just some awesome quotes from the CEO of BlackBerry. We'll get to those in a minute. But we, we will start with the old investing adage, sell in May and go away. And a year ago on Market Foolery, I think I was among uh, – I was probably the first to make fun of this whole notion – this is absurd. You know, why would you sell in May and go away? And yet, when you look at the numbers just from last year, it makes a pretty good case for selling in May and going away because the market dropped more than 5%. And basically, you know, over the, the you know, from May 1st to mid June, the market just tanked and spent the rest of the summer sort of working its way back up. Um, I'll just start with you, Matt. What, what do you think? Because again, there's there's some compelling evidence for this. There is, and in fact, if you go back to I think 2010, 2011, same thing happened. You know, this, the market had a big sell, particularly in 2011 when we had sort of the whole budget crisis in the eurozone. I mean, it was 2011 was the perfect time to sell in May and go away. But I, I I look at this sometimes. You think of it as a market myth, but when you see data like this, and here's here's some something I'm going to share. This was on MSN Money uh, the other day. Two investors investing $10,000 in 1960. One investor invests from November 1st through April 30th. The other investor uh, invests from May 1st to October 31st. The rest of the six months, they're, in, they're both in cash. Just in the market. Just, just, like in, just at- in the S&P, S&P 500. The guy who invests from November to April, uh, uh, over 50 years, is up 50 times for his total return. 50x he's made on his investment. The guy who invests from May to October, he's only doubled his money over 50 years. Which, I mean, you know, we, we talk about market myths, but when you have a, a, something like that, which, you know, we're talking 60 years now, yep. that's, that's dramatic. That, and then that's, there's something to this, right? It does give one pause. I don't adhere to any calendar limitations, Chris. <laughs> there's <laughs> no month that scares me. Uh, but what are, you, what are you, one of these hipsters? There's just like, uh, time means nothing to me. That's why I don't wear a watch. Jason just doesn't study history. He just doesn't. <laughs> um I mean, I, you know, we were talking about this before before taping, and I think there is probably something to sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy nature of this thing because the more headlines you see, uh, it sort of takes legs of its own and just sort of keeps on moving on. And, and there is at least the argument to be made that the market is at, we call them frothy levels at this point, right? Yeah, I mean- so I, I could see why people might be taking gains and, and just, uh, you know, kind of kind of waiting out the time for a little bit. Now, I would say to sort of counter that in, in that, the way the the unemployment picture still looks, the way the economy is looking right now, uh, the Fed doesn't look like they're going to be taking their foot off the gas at any point, which means super low rates for a long period of time, which means that the stock market is really still going to be the best place to find, you know, those those uh, 
better returns. And so I, I do think that while maybe on the whole there could be some selling, I do still believe that there will be some genuine opportunities out there. And, and I think that's you know what we need to try to prey on is when people are selling some of these great companies and you know that selling sends the prices down. Uh, astute investors should take note. Well, and t- to that point, Scott, you look at the results for the market so far this year, just in, in, in the first few months, the Dow up around 13%, the S&P up 12%, the NASDAQ up more than 10%. That's a good year for the market and for investors. So, you know, to, to Jason's point, it absolutely makes sense that there would be people just taking some money off the table, taking some of those gains, and just sitting back for a while. Chris, I think that's right. You also think the market is now at... Are around record highs. So not only are we up nicely in the year to date so far, but we've also got these record highs. So, you know, we are at, at highish levels and to Jason's point, you know, potentially frothy levels or thereabouts. I think the more important thing though is, you know, that the numbers Matt said are really stark, but people still did make money in that other period. And we're also going to put the money. If you're not in stocks, what are you in? Are you in zero yielding cash? Are you trying to speculate on something else? You know what? If there's great opportunities out there, buy great companies, buy them at attractive prices. The other thing is we're not buying the whole market. If you're buying an index fund, maybe that's relevant. But if you're going to buy some great companies that are over oversold or maybe you've missed a you know a quarter or, or a half's earnings, when you get them cheap, that's the time to buy them. You're not going to sit out of the market and say, look, I'm not going to buy it cheap in June or July. Do I'm you, going to take the opportunities when they're there. Do you guys have stocks on a watch list that you just sort of look at going into the summer and think, boy, you know what? If there are some people out there who are just going to blindly sell these off and knock down the price – then I'm looking to maybe snap them up a little bit, or you know, or or you know, if not on a watch list, maybe in your portfolio where you think, boy, if this gets, if this gets knocked down, I'm going to start adding. Always, I, I mean, I, I always keep a watch list, and you know, I'm always saying, hey, gosh, if this if this stock drops 10 percent, man, I, I want to buy more. And if if that period between May and, and October really, you know, sort of. Is a high gives us a high probability of, of having that happen. I'm I'm all about that. So absolutely, yeah, definitely. Always keep a watch list, and 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 to your point as well, uh, stocks that I already own. I mean, I'm not afraid to add to those positions if I feel like uh, the selling is unwarranted or short sighted by nature. So I, I can't en- encourage that enough. All right, let's get to some of the earnings news. DreamWorks Animation first quarter profit fell 39 percent, but people were expecting a loss. Uh, and they still made a profit, Matt. So shares up uh, 6% this morning. Uh, and CEO Jeff Katzenberg gave a lot of credit to The Crudes, the animated movie. I couldn't believe this number. I had to double check it. Uh, has already taken in worldwide $480 million. That is so much more money than I ever thought that movie would take in when I saw the trailer in the theater with my kids. And I just thought, boy, this really doesn't look all that good. Right. And it, I feel like we were here three months ago talking about how bad Rise of the Guardians was. Yes. You know, and then DreamWorks comes along with The Croods, which by all accounts is a hit. And that's kind of how this business goes, you know, from quarter to quarter, from year to year. How many hits can a company like DreamWorks have? But I want to kick this back to you, Chris, real quick, because I thought your insight into this about why you think the Crudes did so well is actually pretty fascinating and, and gets to maybe a larger point about what DreamWorks does with their distribution. There is a, it, a great website called Box Office Mojo, and it's just boxofficemojo.com. And what it does, it, the reason I love it is because it very cleanly, neatly, it's brilliantly organized. It just breaks down all the box office numbers, and you can sort by any you can sort by movie, by calendar, by month, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I saw that number, I thought, 
they must have figured out exactly when to time the release of this movie, and sure enough, they did. They had originally scheduled it for March 1st, then they backed it up three weeks, so it came out March 22nd. And when I looked at, well, what what are the other movies out there? Because this is, you know, as, as our producer Max said before we started taping, just as in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. <laughs> right. When it comes to movies, what are they up against? And the Crudes had no competition in terms of family movies, animated movies, there had been nothing new out for a few weeks prior, and there was nothing coming for uh, close to a month afterwards. And that whoever at DreamWorks Animation said, "No, no, 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 we need we needed to come out this weekend." Right. That person deserves a bonus. Yeah, I mean, if you're a household under the age, with a child under the age of ten, what you got to get go out see? of the house. And it's <laughs> like, well, let's see. There's a new horror movie. There's a new action comedy. Oh no, here's the one animated movie in theaters. Right. And I thought, Jason, you had an interesting point. Maybe this is this is. You know, this is kind of getting into old DreamWorks strategy. I mean, they have to do this because they're up against... I have to believe... I mean, if they don't have an office working this particular angle every day of the year, I would be floored. Because really, I mean, that's this is a company that is solely based on the amount of hits that they put out. They don't put out a lot of hits, and they do a really bad job of monetizing their hits, you know, especially when you compare it to something like a Walt Disney. And so revenue, which has been relatively uninspiring over the past five years, but net income itself has just fallen off of a cliff because they just can't put out hits and monetize those hits so the point where they release these movies and there's nothing else to see i think that is key because you know going to see something like this maybe it's better than nothing uh now to counter that obviously there are plenty of other ways to see movies uh like in your living room or streaming on your ipad or whatever but but really i think the cinematic experience is there's no substitute for that and so that's what these guys are really focused on and as long as they keep doing that i think they could probably still keep their heads above water i personally am not a fan of the stock i think that when you when you see a stock like this get to these levels it's probably a good time to buy or a good time to sell it uh wait for the next dud to come out the stock will sink you can look at maybe buying it back again it's just a classic sort of value investment in my eyes that said, DreamWorks does have some some pretty strong brands. You, you, you know, you got Shrek, you got Madagascar, Kung yep. Fu Panda, and there's one more aspect to the story which they they announced as well with the earnings, which DreamWorks is buying um, Awesomeness TV, which admittedly <laughs> I, I, I hadn't heard about, but it's a YouTube channel. Uh, it's actually a multi-channel. Um, it has 14 million subscribers, um, 800 million video video views. I think this is an interesting story for from this point is that. DreamWorks is not, you know, they're not investing the money to what, like what Hasbro or Disney has done, which is sort of acquiring a network, you know, a network position or, a ch- or you know, real cable TV channel. Instead, they're going after this YouTube market, which, by all counts, is, you know, it's growing by leaps and bounds. It's kind of a, a cheaper way to kind of, as Jason was saying, monetize those brands. It's interesting, and I, I almost think it it says more about Google than it does about DreamWorks. Google, this in a lot of ways validates the power of YouTube. If you know if they've if this awesomeness TV has 14 million subscribers, which is amazing to me. Okay, first of all, they they need to drop that name immediately <laughs> yes, and just rebrand I, it as the I DreamWorks. Hate. I mean, DreamWorks is a great name, and oh. as we've talked about, there are plenty of businesses that have survived lean times just on their brand name alone. So right. just drop Awesomeness TV and make it the DreamWorks channel. But when you Couldn't see these more. relationships between a DreamWorks and a Google or a DreamWorks and a Netflix, the clear winner in this in these deals is DreamWorks. I mean, the other entities can exist without DreamWorks, but this is really becoming the only way that DreamWorks can get their content out there other other than the theater. And the theater, essentially, that dynamic is going to be based on on a timing element on when Disney's not releasing their hits. 
I think Jason's point too is very valid in terms of when to buy and sell this company. This is not a company you want to buy when things are going well. You want to be able to pick it up when they've had a couple of misses, when revenue's been a little bit light. They're going to have the occasional hit, but you don't want to be buying this thing, assuming they're going to make hits you know, all through the year. They're simply not going to or haven't been able to so far. You buy it when it's really cheap, when everyone's forgotten about it, when everyone's walked away, because you're going to have something like the crude all of a sudden pop up, pop the stock, and, and you make a bit of money. You don't necessarily want to buy and hold this, and you certainly don't want to buy it when they've had a string of hits. MasterCard's first quarter profit up 12%, but they missed on revenue, and shares were down more than 2% this morning. What stood out to you when you looked at this quarter? Uh, nothing terribly shocking. I mean, U.S. gross dollar volumes were down. It's just a lighter spending environment, which is which is quite understandable. But I think that really, for me, when I look at Mastercard, it, the the story is still very much intact. Uh, it's it's placed second fiddle to Visa. I mean, they hold about thirty percent market share uh, to, to Visa's, probably all the rest. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> We look at the global transactions. Okay, global transactions. Still, eighty-five percent of global transactions today take place via check and cash. I mean, it's it's hard to actually believe that, but the fact of the matter is that in most places in the world, card technology, electronic payment technology, just hasn't really flourished yet. And so, there is still a tremendous opportunity out there, and Mastercard is taking advantage of it along with Visa and the other players in the space. So, for me, when I see Mastercard selling off a little bit like it is today, I think it's definitely a window opening, an opportunity for longer-term investors to get in with a great company. I mean, it's a company that is just going to—they run a basic duopoly. Right, and they they generate these net margins of thirty percent higher. It's just extremely profitable, and uh, and there's just it's not like they're getting passed by on the technology front. They're helping develop the technology front with your other companies like PayPal and and Square and whatnot. So so I really do think Mastercard is a, is a a solid company, and a sell off like today is, is certainly one that investors would be worth worth watching. I did find it interesting that despite the miss this quarter. They were very quick to come out and say, we're not lowering our guidance. I mean, they were still cautiously optimistic, but they weren't lowering guidance. I'm curious whether it's about MasterCard or if you just want to back it out to companies in general. That's the sort of thing that I I sort of look at that and think, I feel good about that as an investor, as a shareholder. I'm not a shareholder of MasterCard, but that's one of those things that I look at and I immediately go to, well, what's your track record on that? Because if a company's going to stand up and say, yeah, yeah, you know what, this wasn't a great quarter, but here's why we're not lowering guidance and they have that kind of track record – then I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Is this one of those companies? It is, and I, it depends on the nature of the business, too, because if you look at something like a MasterCard, well, they perpetually should do pretty well because people are always spending money on something. They're using these cards. So if DreamWorks, for example, came out and said, hey, we're reiterating our guidance for the rest of the year, I would be skeptical there because we still have to make sure they bring out these hits and monetize them all. With MasterCard, they, there's still reasons to be optimistic. I mean, they see maybe economic conditions improving, maybe the housing market improves, whatever. So there's still time. It's still early in the year, and it's a reputable company with with a pretty consistent uh, revenue stream and a very powerful brand. So I think a lot of it depends on on the company and the nature of what they do. But that MasterCard, to me, is one of them. Right, and it's it's funny. We've got a little bit of dichotomy in the economy. I mean, unemployment numbers continue to seem bad, but consumer spending is holding up. So right. that, and that obviously got, that has to feed right into, into MasterCard. It's also very much, uh, this is an expectations game. They still managed to grow profits at 12%. They grew revenue at 11%. They bought back a ton of shares during the quarter. This is a business firing on all cylinders. I take your, your suggestion, Chris, even further out and say this is a business that's going to be bigger and better two, three, four, five years from now. So 
whether they get this year's guidance, look, we love them too and do well. I'm not a shareholder either. But this is absolutely a short list company. This is a business that's going to be much, much bigger in the years to come. It's going to be much more profitable because they don't scale their costs anywhere near this, the way they scale their revenues. So this business grows. This is something that really should be able to deliver. It's really strong bottom line growth. It's going to be much bigger and better. If you get a chance to buy on the dips, it's a great opportunity. It does seem like when we look at mobile payment and the growth, I don't think there's anyone who looks at mobile payment and thinks, ah, this is this is going to decline. I think everyone is on board with the notion of mobile payment growing. I mean, you throw out the stat about 85% of transactions being by check and cash, and that that almost has to come. Illogical. That almost has to I mean, I, I believe that stat, but it almost has to come down over time. It would seem, though, that this is one of those industries where, uh, unlike other situations we've seen in the past where the leaders get upended and disrupted, it would seem like Visa and MasterCard are actually in a good position to take advantage of it, not just because, as you said, they are involved in developing mobile payment, but they have the brand. I mean, we talked earlier about brand. You know, God bless the people at Square and, and what they're doing in mobile payment, but they don't have nearly the brand recognition of a MasterCard or a Visa, and it would seem like because trust is so important when it comes to financial transactions, that's going to tip the balance in favor of a company like MasterCard or Visa. I think so, and I think that just the length of time that they've been around, the power of that brand, as you as you mentioned, when you go to a bank and you get a debit or a credit card, you're not necessarily asking for a Visa or a MasterCard. A lot of times you get what you get, but it's one or the other typically right. because that's there is that trust factor there. We know they had the infrastructure in place to make all of it work. And to your point about globally, uh, the global electronic payments uh, numbers, I mean, it, it is it is something that. Obviously, only with time will come down. I mean, I remember my time in, in Egypt and Kazakhstan just over the past decade, and, and those were very weak infrastructures in regard to electronic payments. A lot of things you still had to had to pay with cash, but you could see things were sort of picking up there. Now, with Cairo, for example, that's a busy city, uh, pretty westernized in, in, in that in that area of the world, and so they were picking up on technology a little bit sooner than others. But it's a big it's a big world out there, and and just uh, not not many of them are, are really have latched onto the electronic payments uh, market yet. And I think that's encouraging. What is it like in Australia? I know that you look at the banking sector closely. Um, when you think about mobile payment in your country, what does it look like? Yeah, look, it's very much similar to the U.S. We're getting much more in mobile payments. It's really happening right across right across the country. Both mobile and electronic payments are just are big and, and growing. They're becoming a much larger proportion. Um, you know, to flick it back to the U.S. for a second, I've, I turned up about a week ago here. I think I've spent about $100, maybe not even that in cash. And the rest of my transactions have been on, on card. And it's the first time I can remember doing that. Think about five, ten years ago and you were, you were getting traveler's checks and yeah. them with you and cashing them in and you were getting cash for it. You know, just the, the sheer prevalence of that, um, the combination of mobile payments directly and, and just electronic payments in general is just enormous and, and growing. And, you know, there won't be, won't be long before you don't bother even changing cash when you go to a different country. You just simply look for places that accept Visa or MasterCard and that's where this sort of growth is going to come from as well as, as Jason said, the developing world and, and just those places that don't have that penetration yet. MasterCard and Visa have the brands. If, if those payment networks are going to grow, it's going to be those two guys that grow. There's not going to be new disruptors that come in. Just simply the network effects are already massive. We've already got them in our wallets. We're going to be traveling. The developed world is traveling to the developing world and wanting that infrastructure. And that's simply going to just really grow that infrastructure. In five years, I don't think there'll be a reason to have a tablet anymore. So says Thorsten Hines, the awesomely named CEO of BlackBerry. Uh, he went on to say in a recent interview, in five years, I don't think there'll be a reason to have a tablet anymore. Maybe a big screen in your workplace, but not a tablet as such. Tablets themselves are not a good business model. Wow. As I read this article on my tablet, I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> 
Um, I, you know, uh, Joe Mager is uh, quick to point out that uh, CEOs should be talking their own book. But I, I, yeah, but I, this seems like grasping at straws. Well, I guess the tablet's going to go away with the smartphone keyboard. You know? Oh wait. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, BlackBerry. No, I. This is I. I don't know. It, part of this makes me think that BlackBerry just missed it so bad with their with their playbook, which I actually had to ask you guys the name of it because I had forgotten what BlackBerry's tablet was. And you know, it's sort of like let's just let's just bypass that market. You know, we'll let we'll let Apple sell tens of millions of tablets. We'll let, <laughs> we'll let Google sell we're tens of millions of Android tablets. We're, we're going to work on the next big thing, which I'm not sure. Which I guess is a smartphone with a keyboard, which is what the <laughs> Q10 just is, and just BlackBerry just came out with it, which is kind of doing well, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I think this is grasping at straws. For sure. I think you've only got to think about Chris. These are the guys, as, as Matt's already said, who's missed the entire smartphone revelation. Really, they, they, they had the, the scroll wheel with the, the email and a, and a hard keyboard on a phone. That was the last time BlackBerry bought us something new. <laughs> There's been generations and generations of technology since BlackBerry have missed them all. I'm not exactly sure anyone's going to be looking to these guys to give us guidance as to what the next big innovation is going to be or the, the future of technology. As Jay said, he's got an iPad in front of me. I've got one in front of me. It won't be the only device we use, but that's what they're really missing, I think, is there are going to be multiple devices being used for different purposes. Clearly, you know, the iPad is not a great work device for lots of data input, but it's great for reading the web, for checking up on documents, for doing all those great things. And you're going to have a laptop beside you or a desktop or a, or a phone. This is going to be a multi-device market, and expecting the tablet just to go away because there are other options, I think, is a bit short-sighted. What do you think happened with BlackBerry? Because it, it it's easy to forget that this was once... A global leader in in certainly in the smartphone space, and BlackBerry was just certainly in the Washington D.C. area with all of the you know the security was so crucial and it was the the go to device for government officials, and it seems like on some level they just got swept up in looking at Apple and thinking God we've got we've got to drop everything we're doing we have to drop all of our advantage we have to go make the coolest product possible i mean i'm, I'm oversimplifying but it, it you know it's not like they weren't doing well and it's not like they didn't have advantages i think they missed out on the ecosystem really i mean when we look at something like a google or an apple google and apple did a wonderful job of really developing an ecosystem that we all have have used for an extended period of time so then the devices just sort of came from that ecosystem. And so making the leap to the device was a very comfortable move for, for I think, all of us to make. I mean, whether you, you use a, an Android device or, or an Apple device, it's just that that, that, was, uh, that that was software that we were used to using, I mean, whether it was iTunes or whether it's Google Search or what have you. And, and BlackBerry just didn't have that. They didn't have that key competitive advantage. And so when these devices with Android operating systems and Apple operating systems came to be, it was a no-brainer for consumers because it was adopted by the masses and it was just a uh, you know, a lot more convenient. I'll well, take Jason's point one step further too, Chris. You think about, you know, the, the ecosystem was actually the innovation from Apple. That's actually what did it. And if you think about Android, I wonder whether Android would actually still be around today if Google hadn't picked it up and made it a free, accessible, manageable yeah. platform mm-hmm. for other device makers. So you think about the innovation. There was the, the dumb phone, the, the Nokia phone that had nothing. BlackBerry came along. It was an absolute revolution because it actually gave us features we didn't know we wanted, but all of a sudden were great. The iOS comes along from Apple, does the same thing. Android, you know, Good system, Google pick it up, make it really ubiquitous. The real question, and, and you know, for both the hardware and software makers, for the apples of the world is, what's the next disruption? You know, the reason I think BlackBerry got clean, taken to the cleaners was they weren't looking for the next innovation. If they were, they weren't doing it well enough. And it's always that risk with, with software, with technology, is the disruption often comes from places you're not expecting it. 
And that's the real risk for, for the Apples of the world and the Googles is, you know, Google disrupted Yahoo. Apple disrupted BlackBerry, who disrupted Nokia before them. The next innovation is probably going to come from somewhere we're not looking, and that's the biggest risk for the companies themselves and for investors in software and in consumer tech. That's the kind of insight you can read about if you go to fool.com.au. Um, before we wrap up, Scott, uh, heading into the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, what uh, what are you most interested in hearing out of Buffett and Munger in their Q&A session? Um, what's the thing you're looking forward to the most, besides, obviously, the Dilly Bars and the Seas Candy? And the, you know. <laughs> Plenty of Seas Peanut Brittle, which is going to be unreal. Oh, yeah. I think what's going to be really interesting this year is there's going to be a, a nominated Berkshire Bear. So really, in the past, people have asked, Buffett and Munger, a lot of general investing questions. We love hearing the answers, but the answers every year have become a little bit what we heard last year or the year before or the year before that, Right. simply because there's only so much more you can add when you're talking about general investing advice or general investing approaches. This is really going to get down into the company itself and, and really the individual business pieces and what's making a difference, what's really going to, the future's really going to look like. I think Buffett was very clear about how well Todd and Ted, the, the two uh, investment yep. managers at Berkshire, are doing. So getting more about that, but I'm really looking forward to some of those more probing questions Buffett's going to get about the businesses, about investing in general and being forced to, I guess, answer some different questions than what he's answered in the past and hearing some new things from both he and Charlie Munger. All right. Have a good trip. Get back safe and and take good care of Joe Mager (laughs) because that guy needs all the help he can get. Uh, Scott Phillips, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.